All right, we're getting into this. We're in Revelation 4 and 5 this morning. I'm thankful on a personal level that we're going through the book of Revelation. It has been good for my soul. I pray that that's the case for you as well. Um, We have asked you, as we've gone through the series so far, get in the book yourself. So we have these reading guides. You see those on social media. You see those on our website. Uh, you can see those here uh, in the back. But they just, our hope is that you're reading through this and not just waiting to hear what somebody up here is going to tell you. But you're reading through this yourself. So we've been in Revelation 4. If you had the opportunity, hopefully you're able to read that. If you haven't, then we're going to be in uh, Revelation 6 and 7 next week. You can go and just put that on your little calendar and, and, and read that before next Sunday. But um, if you haven't been here, a couple things to, to catch up to speed on. Um, we're going through the book of Revelation, and we're specifically navigating through some things um, uh, in the book of Revelation around kind of four themes. And so the first theme is that we see this book as a letter. It is written to real people in real time. And so it cannot mean to us and our own interpretation what it did not mean to them. So we have to keep uh, cognizant of that. So it's a letter, it's an apocalyptic uh, piece of writing, which means it's, it's designed to unveil things. It's designed to open up our minds and our hearts to things through imagination, through allegory. And so we're going to see it's an apocalyptic piece of literature. Third, we see it's a prophecy, which means that it's designed, just like Old Testament prophets, they were designed to both bring comfort to the people of God and conviction to the people of God. It's prophetic uh, writings were always designed to call the people of God to be distinct. So over and over again, you read Jeremiah, you read Isaiah, you read Ezekiel, you're going to find that. You read Revelation, you're going to find that. It's designed to bring comfort and conviction. And so it's a letter, it's an apocalypse, it's uh, a prophecy, and lastly, it's a liturgy of worship. And there's not a week that we're going to see more explicitly a focus of this being a liturgy of worship than this morning. Um, so we're going to be in Revelation 4 and, and 5, and there's, there's such a profound nature to these two chapters. It can't be overstated. There's a guy named N.T. Wright. He's a New Testament scholar. He's also an Anglican bishop, and, and he had this story that I saw this last week of uh, kind of walking with a friend. They were about to lead this service, and the friend just said, um, oh, I'm, I'm noticing that we're going to be reading Revelation 4. That's the second most wonderful piece uh, of scripture in the Bible. So N.T. Wright responds, well, what's the first most? And he said, Revelation 5. So Revelation 4 and 5 have a a beautiful um, essence to them that can stir our affections in profound um, ways. And as we begin, I have a confession for us. I am am really dependent on my glasses and contacts. I don't know if anybody with me, like, if you don't wear, yeah, wow. That's awesome. Well, you're not alone. If you have glasses, you're not alone. This is home for you. And if you don't need glasses, this is also a home for you. But for me, it's bad. Like, I can't see anything without them. Like, I take these things off or don't wear glasses. I I can't see road signs. Driving becomes dangerous for me. It's, like, really scary and not good. My wife is blurry. Like, I can't see her face. I can't really see life at all without my glasses or my contacts. But when I wear them... And for those of you who do, you get it. Like when you put them on, it's just like clarity. Like, wow, there there are real things out there that aren't just blobs. They are real. Like things become clear to us. I'm able to see things with clarity. And Revelation 4 and 5 is like putting on a set of glasses. It's like putting on a set of glasses that we can put on and, and they shape how we live. They shape how we see life. They inform our reality. 
And so as we go through Revelation 4 and 5, I want to pretend like we're, by faith, putting on a pair of glasses and seeing some things with clarity that we might not have been able to see otherwise. Revelation 4 and 5. We're going to jump in. Revelation 4, verse 1, it says this. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Let me pray for us. Father, I I ask that you would cause our hearts to just see a bit more clearly this reality. Open our hearts, stir our hearts towards you this morning by your spirit. Would you move among us, God, in Jesus' name, amen. So we've entered into this text and we've entered in the apocalyptic portion of this book. The unveiling has now begun. Eyes are being open. It's like we're putting on some glasses. And the first thing that is unveiled is very interesting, and we can't overlook the importance of the first thing being unveiled. It isn't who the Antichrist is. It's not the first thing that's unveiled. The first thing that is unveiled is not when the great tribulation is going to be. The first thing that's unveiled is not uh, who the woman is in Revelation 12 or what Babylon is. The first thing is oh so clear. The center of the universe is being unveiled. This is the first window that John saw. And that matters. Like it's the preeminent, the most important thing that's being unveiled is this. The first window is being opened. Everything is now being seen clearly. Everything is moving toward the throne. That is the window that we're seeing, the first window. It's the epicenter of the ultimate reality. And so in verse one, we see it that that John says, after this, I looked. And then he uses this phrase, behold. Again, it's a reminder, get your glasses on. See this unseen reality. And then this door is opened in heaven. Now for us, having more of a Greek perspective of life. When we think of heaven, we think of expanse. We think of universe. We think of sky. But for the for the Hebrews, uh, for the Jewish people, heaven was was right in front of us. It was the it was the reality of God, which was what heaven was. And so when a door was standing open in heaven, it could be right before us. I almost see it like the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. When Lucy walks into the wardrobe, it's not that she went up into outer space, but it was right before her. It was opened up to her, and she walked into it. I see that similar to what John is doing here. He's invited into a, a heavenly reality that is right before him. It's not future. It's not at the end of the age. It's present right here and now. 
this present reality, again, it's not a future reality. And, you know, we yearn for a reality like this. That's why, like, things like the Matrix are so profound and kind of stir us in such an interesting way. That's why we really like Stranger Things. Like, there's just something about it. It's like, it's kind of scary, kind of gory, and, man, it's just incredible because it just creates this other world to our reality. See, we're invited into this right now. This reality, if we put our glasses on and we see by faith that there's a whole nother reality happening right before us. And John enters into a space where heaven and earth kiss. It's like they come together and he experiences what's happening right before him. This is our true north. And this is the reality that John is seeing. So let's consider who is on the throne. And then we're going to consider what's around the throne before we get to Revelation 5. So what's on the throne? The throne of the universe, friends, is occupied. It's occupied, which means it's not up for grabs. There's one on the throne. There's only one. And he is seated upon that throne with ordinary glasses. We or without putting on glasses. We may think otherwise. But by faith, when we put on these glasses, we see there's one on the throne, seated with confidence and power. And that throne is not up for grabs. Imagine how John is interpreting this and kind of processing this. He's under the grasp of Rome. He's seen this tyranny of Rome, of Nero and now uh, Domitian ruling the day. Man, Christians are dying and doubt is increasing and the church is wondering where the kingdom of God is that Jesus promised. And yet he sees this unveiling And there's one on the throne. The one on the throne isn't standing. The one on the throne isn't anxious. He isn't in submission to Rome or any other ruler. John was so aware of Caesar. He was so aware of the throne and senior counselors around Caesar in that day. But he sees this one, not standing, seated. Like there's a confidence there. Seated. On the throne. Two times we see in this text that he's seated or he sat. He is seated and he is king. And he writes, says that we are invited to see that powers of the world are simply parodies, cheap imitation copies of the one power who really and truly rules in heaven and on earth. He is seated and he is king now and forevermore. And we give him thanks for that. There's comfort in that. I came across a story of Louis XIV, who died in, obviously, you know, 1715. Uh, and um, during his death, there was a, a priest that was conducting his service, his funeral. And, you know, there was all kinds of just festive, like it was, there was beauty in his death and being a monarch. And this priest watched as his body went into the grave and robes laid on top of Louis Fourteenth, this great monarch. And turning to the assembled noble, uh, nobility, he said, my friends, only God is great. He understood the kings die. He understood that those that are on thrones will die. And he said, only God is great. It is God who reigns. And we see this with these glasses 
as we look here. And John uses this imagery of what he sees. He sees a rainbow, and that's pointing back to Noah. And that's pointing back to the promise of mercy that God has extended to humanity. We see peals of thunder. We see a sea of glass that as we go later in the book of Revelation, we see that the sea kind of communicates chaos. But before the throne, it's like crystal. It's quiet before this one upon the throne. All this beauty that we're seeing of God's majesty and radiance and brilliance and mercy. But there was one, only one, on the throne. You know, we have, without these glasses on, we can naturally begin to build our own kingdoms. We know this. We can begin to put ourselves on the throne. We can begin to try to usurp the power of the one on our throne with our own career and our own expectations and our own dreams and our own desires for this life. We can try to wrestle him off the throne. Bad idea without question, but we try to do it nonetheless. And that is the essence of sin, trying to usurp the very thing that he is designed to be upon, him as the creator, us as the creation. We're tempted to usurp this. We're, we attempt to usurp and we get frustrated. And in return, we get angry. And in return, we live lives of disappointment because we want to be on that throne. But again, it's not up for grabs. The best thing that we can do is recognize that there is a God and we are not him. There is one on the throne and it's not us. I mean, accepting that thing is the greatest gift that you can give to yourself, to your family, to your kids, to your spouse, to your friends, to your coworkers. Man, there is one on the throne, and it's not me. I mean, we get frustrated in those moments, and if we don't let go of that attempt to try to fight God off the throne, we end up living with frustration. We end up trying to medicate ourselves. We medicate ourselves with alcohol. We medicate ourselves with porn. We medicate ourselves with trying to find other relationships that aren't our spouse to give us something that they can't give us. We binge in certain areas. I mean, it's when we let go and remember there is one upon the throne. It frees our hearts to not carry a weight we were never designed to carry to begin with. There's one on the throne. There's comfort in putting on these glasses to see reality clearly. There's one on the throne, and he is the most stable reality in the universe. Friends, this one is the most stable reality in the universe. Robert Muntz, who's a commentator, um, scholar, focused on the book of Revelation. He says, nowhere in the literature of the heavenly visions will one find a more inspiring presentation of the God who reigns supreme over all than in this text. Everything is moving toward this throne. And it continues in verse 8. We see this. And the four living creatures, each of them, this gets rad, guys, with six wings all full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated, again, seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fell or fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worshiped him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, 
to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So again, first we see that there is one on the throne, and second we see through this text that there's things around the throne that are before him. There's 24 elders, it says. It's likely referencing, again, these numbers are pointing to things, that the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. That's 12 plus 12, you carry the one, that's 24. So God's redemptive plan is coming to pass before our eyes. And then we see these living creatures. These things are wild. But John tells us what he sees, and there are these, there are these animals. I, actually, I, get, I didn't read this part. This is actually in verse 7. But we see a lion, we see an ox, we see uh, a man, and we see an eagle. You know, it's interesting, as, as the early church would have read this, they, they hear lion, a lion before the throne. When, when you hear a lion in the first century, you think of the power of Rome. You think of the prestige and the majesty of Rome. And that one, Rome, the lion, is now, I don't even know why I was going to use this word, now laying before, you know when you're in front of people (laughs) and you don't look at your notes and all of a sudden you're like right there and you don't want to screw it up and ruin the moment and so you just pause and you say, they're going to just lay down. They're laying down before, amen, before the throne. Um, that wasn't on purpose. I wasn't trying to be funny. Here we go. I was, wanted to stay true to not make people laugh there. So, um, but there, the, the lion is laying before the throne. There's no empire that competes with the kingdom of God. And we, we can translate this a little bit later, and we can see um, for us, when we think of eagle, we think of America. And I don't think that John was doing this here, but we can apply it that all nations are laying before the throne of God and worship. We know where this thing goes. Every knee is going to bow and tongue going to confess. That's every nation. That's every king. That's every president. That's every dictator laying before this throne. And we're seeing that here. See, when the church heard this, this brought courage, man. Remember what's happening. John is on this island He has been persecuted because of his faith. Christians are getting put put down with tyranny and and being burned at stakes. You can imagine the fear and reading the story and seeing the lion laying before the throne. That brings courage that this thing's not over. brings courage that this thing's not done. He's seated upon the throne. See, the point isn't what is around the throne. The, The point is why they're there. And why are they there? Because of worship. See, worship comes from an old English word that means worthiness. And the epicenter of the universe is a throne filled with worship. The epicenter, the first window that's opened, the first, the premier window that's opened, is one of a throne that's centered around worship. See, when we come to worship today, we actually are entering into a service already in progress. And we put our lenses on and we see there's already something going down. And we're just stepping into that. We're just a part of what's already happening. Whether you feel like worship ends well on a Sunday or doesn't, that's not for us to judge. Because worship's erupting in heaven. And we're simply partnering with what is already happening there. The Westminster Shorter Catechism said, What is the chief end of man? The answer is that man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. 
So we don't come to this conclusion without these glasses on. We think the chief end of man is to kind of make our own way, to figure out our own path, to be yourself, whatever the latest phrase is. But no, it's not true. What is the chief end of man? It's recognizing it is not about us, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. The longer we wear these glasses, the more true this becomes. Daryl Johnson, another commentator I read, said the single most reliable indication that our vision is clear is that we are worshiping people. You want to know if your vision's clear? You want to know if the, the glasses are actually shaping your life? Consider if you're a worshiping person, not just in song, but in life. We're beginning to taste the impact of worship is happening in Revelation 4 and 5. There's power in worship that we're seeing through this text as we navigate through. There's power in singing that we're seeing here. Have you ever found yourself maybe listening to worship through singing or in a worship gathering where you're just overtaken by a moment, where your, your eyes are just lifted out of your circumstance, out of your moment? You know, through the past several years, I've had a handful of these experiences. I've had some in this room. I've had, I remember just recently, my wife, who was singing up here, was singing King of Kings. And I just remember that Hillsong song. And I just remember my heart just being caught up in the fact that this is not about me. I don't know if you've had that experience before. I remember being at an Acts 29 conference and uh, singing with a bunch of men and women. And just wept at the fact that he's not left me. Just getting caught up in the fact there's something bigger than me going on. Times when I've just sat in my kitchen, it's not just about being in a gathering, sitting in my kitchen and and cleaning the dishes and just having worship being turned on and and just my heart being warmed at the fact that God is near and good and kind and merciful. See, in those moments, it's like the fog lifts for a second. It's like we gain clarity just for a second by faith and kind of glimpse the greater reality of what's going on and then the fog typically just sets right back. But it's that thin space when, when heaven and earth come together. These moments are rare, but they're beautiful. And man, it's worshiping through singing that helps us to get our, our head and our heart connected to that reality. That's why, man, I don't, I don't care if you raise your hands or not here. Be expressive. Do something that's kind of different than what your temperament is. But be a singing people. Like, that's, that's, the, that's the standard. Like, I don't care. I've been sitting behind some of you guys, and, and they're not good. Like, voice, not good. And that's Okay. I'd sing, like I don't care like where your vocal standards are, but sing. That would be the expectation here. We all want to be a singing people. This is what Revelation's reminding us of. It's not saying if you're, if you're an alto, alto or baritone or like then you can sing. Like it doesn't matter if you know what key you're in. Like just sing because there's something about our head and heart colliding together that awakens our affections, puts our glasses on to see this reality. And the enemy, though, would seek to hijack worship from creator to creation. He does it all the time. But when we put these glasses on, we see reality. He's worthy of our praise as the creator of all things. Everything's moving towards this throne. So we could end there, but we got Revelation 5, and they're married. So we're jumping in right here to Revelation 5, verse 1. The story just gets even more wonderful in verse 1. It says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. 
And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the world. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. We'll pause there. There's two things that John saw. He saw a scroll. There was a spotlight on a scroll, and there was a spotlight on an angel. So what is this scroll with these seals? So the scroll, God the creator has a scroll. He's like an architect. He has the building plans. He knows how this thing's going to end, and in this scroll is how it's going to happen. And it's going to happen through someone taking this scroll from him. And T. Wright goes on to say, in this scroll is God's secret plan to undo and overthrow the world-destroying projects and have already gained so much ground and to plant and nurture instead the world-rescuing world project which will get creation itself back on track in the right direction. See, his plan is to bring heaven to earth, to make the wrong things right, to bring forth justice and deal with sin and pain and sorrow and death. And these seals, we're actually going to get into them next week because we're going to find out, uh, spoiler alert, Jesus is about to take this scroll and he's about to pop open every one of these seals. And these seals are, are like wax things that have been put upon as, as um, indicators that you cannot open the scroll. You actually be put to death if you open the scroll without being the person that was, um, had the authority to open this scroll. And so there's these seven seals that we're actually going to jump into next week. So there's this one, imagine this one seated on the throne and with his right hand is the purposes of redemption and restoration. How is this world going to be fixed? Seated with this in his right hand. And this angel shouts, who is worthy to bring this about? This angel scours the universe. He looks to the heavens, he looks to the earth, and he looks under the earth. And it says, no one was found worthy. It's humbling. It's a humble declaration that no one was er uh, found worthy to bring about this fulfillment. You know, humans, we can do a lot of things. We can build skyscrapers. We can develop all kinds of technology. We can get things delivered to you in two days for free, which is cool. We can write poetry. We can paint artwork. We can produce soul-stirring um, soul films like Marry Me. Um, we can... <clears throat> We can make babies, we can do all kinds of things, but no one can bring about this redemptive plan. No one. And John wept. And Eugene Peterson's message, he says, he extends it, and he says, John wept and wept and wept. The world weeps. The world scours and looks in our own world to find something under the sun that can bring about redemption, and no one is found worthy. We feel this ourselves, the pain of life. You know, this is a realistic view of the deep-rooted problem of all the human race. This is our problem. As the world under the sun, apart from God, no one deserves, no one's found worthy to open the scroll. 
And it's in this response vision that stirs our emotions, our minds, and our hearts in a beautiful way. He says, weep no more, the angel says to John. For behold, again, behold, get your glasses on, see what's about to happen. Track with me when he says this. He says, John heard, and this is what he's heard. He heard the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered. He heard that a lion has overcome. These are Old Testament references. In Genesis 49, it references Judah being a lion. And so there's a reference there. That Judah is a lion figure and the kingdom will flow through Judah. He's the root of David. That's in Isaiah 11. We read that over Advent. That when the root of David comes, eternal shalom will happen. But then he looks, because oftentimes we have this in the book of Revelation. We have that you hear something, and oftentimes what you hear is not what you see. And so John heard a lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. And then he looks, and what does he see? A lion, right? No. No, he doesn't. This is mind-wrenching. What he sees is a lamb. He expected a lion. What he saw was a lamb. There are two Greek words for lamb in the New Testament. One is an adult sheep, and then one is a little lamb. And in this text, the Greek word is little lamb. So here we read the latter. The lion has overcome, and I turned and I saw a little lamb slain. This little lamb had seven eyes. What does that mean? Seven means fulfillment. So when you hear seven, translate that to fulfillment or completeness or wholeness. And so eyes are a picture of wisdom. So complete and true wisdom, completely wise, this lamb is. Seven horns against seven is completeness. Horns is a sign of strength. And so this lamb is strong and immensely powerful. The conquering lamb is victorious because he was slaughtered. This lamb was slaughtered, and it's only because he was slaughtered that he has the victory to triumph and to take this scroll. See, in the kingdom of God, power and victory is not found through strength. Power and victory is found through humility and sacrifice. That's how we function. That's how we are distinct in this world. We don't overcome power with power. We overcome power with sacrifice. We overcome power with humility. This is the way of Jesus. See, to conquer the pain of suffering, Jesus became the man of suffering. The center of the throne room of God has one who has suffered. And that speaks volumes to us when we struggle about the pain of this life what to do with God and pain and how we navigate through that. We look at the center of the throne and at the center of the throne is one who has suffered more unjustly than anybody in human history. If there's anybody that knows a thing or two about suffering, it is him. And we find comfort in that. The conquering one is meek and gentle. And it's the one, he's the one that said, I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore. See, this victory came through the sacrifice of the lamb. This lion lamb is the one by which redemption happens. There's no other name by which we can be rescued. He alone is the provision of God to remedy this world. And so what's the response as we close? The response is this in verse 9. And they sang a new song. Ernie, I don't want to sing. They sang, so we sing. Their voices probably weren't all perfect either. So they sang a new song, saying, worthy are you to take the scroll.'" 
and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands and thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. There's three, three songs that we see here. The first song is praising Jesus, the Lamb, for rescuing the people by his death. And so it's a, it's a, it's a declaration of gratitude. Thank you for rescuing us, Jesus. Thank you for being the only one worthy of worship and the only one able to take the scroll. That's the first song that's sung. The second song they turn, turns from what Jesus the Lamb has achieved to what he deserves. It's not about what you did for us, Jesus. It's about who you are. Blessing and honor and glory and might is yours alone, Lamb who was slain, King Jesus. It's a declaration of worthiness. It's what we read in Matthew 13 when Jesus talks about the, this parable of him being the pearl of great price. That he is the one worthy of our lives. It's the, the one that Paul references in Philippians 3 that says, I will count everything to be loss in comparison to knowing Jesus. It's this worthiness that, that is evoked in this second song. And then the third song, the praise of Jesus the Lamb has joined together with the worship of the creator of the one on the throne. See, Jesus shares the worship which belongs uniquely and only to the one creator, God. And that's shocking. Don't let that ever not be shocking, that Jesus receives the same worship that the Creator receives. I'd always known that Jesus was God. For years, I grew up in the church, and so that was something that was, I was aware of. But I, I, during youth ministry, the youth ministry back in the early 2000s, mid-2000s, and I was studying for some things, and I came across um, a book, and long story short, my mind was blown of the idea that Jesus, the one who walked the streets of Nazareth, receives the same worship as the creator of all things because he is the creator of all things. Blew my mind that the man from Nazareth is God and worthy of worship. Colossians 1, that he is the image of the invisible God. By him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Rulers and dominions, all things were created by him and for him. Hebrews 1, that he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds all things by the word of his power. See, these are the glasses that we are putting on. Blessing and honor and glory and power to the one on the throne and to the lamb. I believe that N.T. Wright's friend was correct, that these are some of the most majestic passages in the scripture. 
So if we learn anything about spiritual formation and following Jesus, we learn that worship matters. Worship matters, friends. We are all worshipers. And the enemy wants to steal your worship, to put it just on creation and not on creator. And our journey as followers of Jesus is to learn to get our glasses on by faith and live from this reality that history is heading towards a day where everyone will be at the feet of the Lamb in worship. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And so as I close, maybe you feel the same feeling that John felt when he just began to weep. I don't know what your life's like right now, but maybe you just feel the pain of life. And like, is this, is this going to turn for good? Maybe you feel the sorrow. Maybe you feel like weeping just like John did. There is one, friends, who has overcome. There isn't a quick fix to pain, but there is one who is the man of sorrows, who's at the center of the throne, who knows the pain of life and who has overcome and who has invited you into his fold. And he's worthy to bring about redemption. And this is our hope. And this is what draws us to worship him. Amen? Let's pray. Imagine that angel with that loud voice. Who is worthy to take the scroll and open its seals? And that spectrum of emotion from deep sadness to deep comfort. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome. We give you thanks. You haven't left us. We give you thanks that there is purpose in this life that you are bringing about redemption. And we gather this morning to remember it, God. Help us to remember it. Help us to not give into the delusion that us being our own little puny kings and our own puny kingdoms is enough. Lord, call us into something higher, Lord. There's one on the throne and there's a lamb by his side and worship is filling the heavenly realm. And Lord, we just want to live our lives centered around that. And we ask you to help us. We ask you to stir our hearts for you afresh. In Jesus' name, amen.